At approximately 5.15 p.m. on May 10th in 1967, three boys ages 11, 13, and 14 explore a cave near their house in Mark Twain's hometown of Hannibal, Missouri. Brothers Billy Hogue, Joel Hogue, and friend Craig Dow are never seen again. Making the case go cold for over 50 years. Using the facts from 1967, we reopen the case for the lost boys of Hannibal. Welcome back to the Lost Boys of Hannibal podcast. I'm your host, Frankie Campoletta. And with me, but for only two more episodes, Chris Ketters. Hi, Chris. How are you? Good. And you, you just let the cat out of the bag of those people who didn't, uh, haven't <laughs> seen our uh, our post. Uh, this is a two-parter season finale, which wasn't planned once again. <laughs> this whole season seems like it hasn't been planned. It went everywhere <laughs> and nowhere and then back to somewhere. So Thank you, it's COVID. definitely. Thank you, COVID. Yeah, thank you. Wow, what a year. What a year. Um, but I'm not going to be one of those people that complains about it. I think we got a lot done. And we, as you'll see in this episode, we, we've, uh, we've, we've done a lot. We've done a lot to um, move the needle uh, in the direction that we want to go. And I guess, Chris, you can speak to it better than I can. I mean, We've had some really interesting chats online, really interesting online people have come forward helping us. And speaking of those people that are helping us, we need reviews. So if you guys love the show, please go to Apple Podcast, Android, and leave us reviews. We have not gotten a review since August, so we want to know how we're doing. Uh, So please feel free to go on Apple and give us a review. But as far as other people that have been helping us, as far as our team has grown exponentially this year... Uh, with all different aspects, which is really cool, Chris. I think that we have the serial killer mindsets on some of them, looking and researching people. And then we have more of the, I don't know, the geographers and the researchers and the people looking for anything that has to do with Tobin or things that had happened around the construction ways. So what, where, are you, where are you at right now, Chris, with this almost season finale? Well, uh, you know, it's interesting to me because – you know, we started this season, and I can't remember if it was back in, I think I want to say it's like January or February we started this season, but it was, our thought process before all this COVID stuff started was, let's go out and do interviews. Let's let's make this the season of interviews. That's how we were wrapping season one and going into season two, and then obviously all this stuff happened, and then our mindset changed, and, and, and honestly, there was a few weeks, and, and, and everybody that's a dedicated listener out there, they, they knew there was a couple times where we missed a little bit of, of, a, of a time frame, and that was because we were still at the point of like, how, how are we going to make this work? Because we had a great plan going into the beginning of the season, and then it kind of all fell apart on us, so we had to reorganize. But the flip side of that is, is because of us doing this reorganization and doing things that, that we weren't planning on doing, I, honestly, Frankie, I think we discovered more than we would have if we would have done it the way we were planning on it, which is great because now we have more information, more stuff that's not in any of the books or any of the websites or anything like that that we've presented, and now we have that one great collection of, of items, and obviously we'll have some more of those uh, items to pass on today. Yeah, and we've also been 
getting a lot of fan mail. And when I mean mail, I mean actual mail. And I still have yet to send you some cool stuff. But um, I'll, I'll, I'll release that bonus episode in our break in our interim. We have a couple different episodes that we're going to be releasing. And also any updates that come up within the two seasons, within from season now ending season two, now ending to season three, Anything that comes up, we will do a special spotlight session. It could be maybe 15 or 20 minutes. Um, as as America gets ready for a very tumultuous election coming up in November, I think that season three will probably start after that. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> maybe, maybe COVID will be be gone by yeah. then, too. Maybe there's some kind of miraculous cure that they'll that they'll use for a, uh, a political campaign. Um, but if there isn't, I mean, we still plan on chugging along uh, this course. And as you'll see in this today's episode, before we get into that, I know Chris has some announcements to make and some stuff that we want to discuss first. But um, this episode really brings you back to kind of the scene as far as what we've been doing from boots on the ground to Tobin to road work schedules. So it's a fun episode to kind of give you an all-encompassing glance at where we've been, not only this season, but where we're headed into the future. So... The thing that I, I guess my takeaway from this, Chris, is that like I really, because I was asked online, I think, I don't know if you saw that comment, but it was like, hey, Frankie and Chris, where do you stand? Hey, I saw that. (laughs) And I was like, "Um, I'm going to answer on the podcast. And the truth is, I don't even know anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I flip-flop more than I have when I lived on the beach in Florida. So I, 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 I just don't know where I'm at anymore. I'm so lost with all the possibilities of of what could have happened, right? All the probabilities. So it's just like, at this point, is there one thing that points me in the direction? I think, I don't, I, I feel that, Chris, you're still with that sinkhole idea, and I'm kind of, I'm kind of bordering you too. There's something about that that's just mysterious because it's something that they didn't look for, something that could have got away from them, uh, being that they were so involved with other aspects of finding these boys in caves and roads and stuff like that that time did not allot for any kind of other type of uh, geology that might have been happening around that same area but as you'll see today there's some interesting things with uh, people and how things got reported so i think that you know all in all as, as this season comes to a close you know did i want to be further along with having a suspect I think maybe we have probably the best suspect that we've had since we started the show. So I'm happy about that, Chris. Not counting the cave. Not counting the cave is a suspect. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I think you've run up a, a bunch of good points there. But, you know, one thing that kind of going back to what I was saying just a minute ago was that, you know, we got through the season. We're going to present to you stuff today that is stuff that we've collected over the season, but it hasn't been enough to like throw out its own dedicated podcast. But it's been bits and pieces of things that um, are very critical to the overall you know, investigation, but not so much as, as we can, we can blow a whole hour into a podcast about, uh, but I do want to point out uh, going back to next, especially going into next season in our hopes. And I know we'll talk about this more in, in our next episode that we're going to do, but you know, we still have, I still, I've said this a couple times now. I have a list of about 
15 different little um, names on my board, my whiteboard I'm looking at, that uh, is still people that we want to interview. And, you know, having that firsthand knowledge from those interviews is definitely going to be key. And obviously, it's going to help us with our documentary as well. So, uh, you know, that's still the hopes for season three for me. But, I mean, we still have stuff. It's great because, and we'll, we talked about it a little bit last episode. We'll talk about it again this episode about what we're moving, what we're doing moving forward with, with our boots on the ground effort. Yeah, and the thing that I'm seeing too is like as you go through our page, we have we always list how many downloads we have. You have the option on Podbean to not show how many downloads you have, and I think me and Chris from Jump have always been transparent with our numbers, with the money um, that we never asked for, <laughs> but everybody thinks we're making some kind of money on this. <laughs> It's still strange because something will float out there in the social media is like, oh, yeah, I saw Frankie has a new car. I'm like, well, I have a new car because I have a lot of jobs. (laughs) So, like, you know, um, but it has nothing to do with this podcast. And I think that what we're really trying to do is gear up some episodes and and having uh, having Lil here, Lily, I call her Lil or or McLeod, um, with me has really brought some depth into the actual filming in that process and i know i get a lot of questions and sometimes they are private through facebook that's not even through lost boys of hannibal and i just wanted to take the time right now as we go through this episode to thank all of you for the support i I think it's awesome um just incredible i know you guys want to see this as a film and i think it's going to be an incredible film uh, me and Chris right now are in talks about doing this maybe episodic. And what that would mean is it's uh, basically kind of like a show and you would have episodes uh, leading up to it. Or it could be its own combined documentary. We have yet to make those determinations. I believe based on our timeline and the hard work that Chris has done with organizing everything that he has researched uh, with me and then outside of me, which uh, this season really is... Chris's hard work and being, being actually on the ground 20 minutes from Hannibal has helped him. Uh, We've used COVID to our advantage, I think as well. Um, Even though our schedules um, can be lax at times being that I worked from home anyway, regardless of, of COVID, you know? So um, I just did want to reach out to people about like, I know you guys really want to see some stuff and some trailers and, and some of the stuff that we shot, some footage, and hopefully we can compile some of that and put it together uh, for you guys to show you. But I, I would rather announce it first before showing you what we got going on. Cause once again, it comes back to that being transparent, you know, uh, and what we're trying to do. Uh, I had one more question, Chris, and this is weird because it's going through like my personal Facebook. Um, and the question is, and, uh, and they said they want to remain anonymous, but, um, have we ever, ever given thought to possible family member being involved with the disappearances of the boys? And the reason why I bring this up is because this happens a lot on podcasts. Me and Chris discussed this this week, I think at some point, and we want to tell you straight out from the bottom of our hearts, First and foremost, thank you. It's a good question because you will read statistics about families being involved in these types of heinous acts. But more importantly, as of right now, we have nothing that could even preclude any family member involved with these boys' disappearance. All we have seen is support for the families. All we have read, written, and heard from is the search continued way after these boys went missing. So we do not have any leads in that area, nor are we even trying to go down that route. 
at, at this current moment, the people that we have talked to from the Hogue family like our podcast and they like the work that we're doing. Um, and they especially like the fact that we're not asking for money every episode, that this is really truly about their family members that we're helping to find. And if me and Chris can never find these boys, then maybe the work that we've done here can really be the direction of that. And I will tell you right now, Chris, as much as I want to do this documentary, um, if there is another team a year from now or two years from now, I have no problem handing everything that we've done off to anyone that wants to get involved with looking for them. Because at the end of the day, I think even with John Wingate, who we probably mention every episode and I'm sure has made a small fortune on this podcast <laughs> um, with his book sales, but because it is a good book and you should have it and you should read it and it really gives you a good up to speed on what we've been divulging in. Our podcast, once again, is not affiliated with that. That's another question I get a lot. We're not affiliated with the book at all. Um, at the same time, I think that it is important that we remember that regardless of how old this crime is, the family members are still alive. They are still around. They do comment and they're commenting from on other panels as well and news stations. So it is important to, and be mindful that to be respectful as well. Um, I would hate to lose any one of my family members in this type of way. And I would hate it even more. And I would be hurt if I would even think that somebody would think that somebody in my family would do something like that. So be mindful of that, be careful of that. And yes, it is not a direction me and Chris feel comfortable going in um, for numerous reasons that I've just, and that probably was a little long-winded, but I felt that that was important, Chris. I don't know if you want to add to anything yeah. on that. Um, no, I, I, I completely agree with you. And, and you know, there there was some minor speculation we've had other people had brought up that that concept and there was a and we brought it up in i believe oh there was i can't remember if we did the mary joe powell no that's an upcoming uh it's an upcoming bonus episode uh but mary joe powell had a letter to the editor back in the 2000s i believe and she actually like names a person uh in there about kind of trying to uh, rowl up things and, and then there was that whole speculation that, that about that same time about that oh the the father did it and he buried him in the basement and and all that and um, there is a report and I haven't got I uh, haven't been able to get it from the Hannibal Police Department yet but I know Charles Webster Detective Charles Webster uh, he did submit a report to the police department about that time frame about that situation not about 1967 but about uh, re investigating the father and there's no no indication whatsoever and Frankie brought it up I want to reemphasize one of the biggest keys for me and I, I think I've listened to quite a few true crime podcasts and, and you always hear like well that seems kind of weird the family just kind of said yeah blah, I don't want anything you know whatever they you know a lot of times they're put if they don't care after the fact, that makes them question a little bit more. And it does me too. If they're just like, whatever, they're gone, we're done. But that's not the case. And we've gotten true evidence from uh, from family members of the Hogue family saying that, hey, um, that Mike Hogue and, and Fred, are, they spent years and years traveling the country following up on leads after that. And that's not something, in my mm -hmm. opinion, just bottom of the line, in my opinion, somebody that has killed people are not going to spend the time and spend the money and willpower to try finding them when they know what the results of that is. It's just as that simple to me. 
Yeah. And and the other thing too, Chris, I would add to that is that like the, the family did have a lot of pain even after these boys. They dealt with suicide. They dealt with arrest. They dealt with murder. They dealt with a lot. And every family does, believe it or not. You can break that down into small, minimal chunks, minimal sizes and slices. And these are things that, that occur within life. And we don't know why they occur. There's a lot of different circumstances that, that occur with that. So to add anything to that as well, we can't blame the sins of the sons on the fathers and vice versa. So, you know, it's all families go through a lot of pain. And so to point out, well, this happened, you know, 20 years or 40 years later really has nothing to do with three missing boys, especially when you involve a child that's not part of that family. <laughs> Craig Dow had yeah. nothing to do with the Hogs aside from being a family. So, you know, he's innocent in all of this in the sense of like, and, and I get it. And I do, I do really appreciate your comments. I really do. I really look at it and, and you always have me thinking. Um, I just feel right now that I'm going to be, I'm going to be stubborn on that just because I, you're going to have to really move us with something. And I just don't see that happening, especially after, you know, you had really good detectives and cops in the area that really kind of blew out every lead and everything. Even when they went through the tunnels and and they did the construction on one of the schools and they basically raised all those buildings, there was no evidence of any of that stuff. So, well, and that's uh, you, you say that, you know, no evidence of the family being involved. Now, ironically enough, we get to the end of this episode and that kind of changes a little bit because we did get a little bit of a lead (laughs) for somebody else, but we'll tell you about that. Got a really good lead. So with that, I, I, I really think that that's all I have. Um, um, Frankie, I'll go ahead and add real quick. One of the things that you yep. brought up, it, it talking about, you know, if, if some other group comes in, and obviously this is not, we're, we're not anywhere near being done yet, and we'll get into that. Yeah, that's not an invitation. Yeah, well, yeah it's true. <laughs> uh, we put a lot of work into this. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's, um, you know, if for some reason in some way that we don't end up uh, being successful in this, in this uh, search. And I've said this before and I'll say it again, that is I really am hoping that not only this podcast will live for a hundred years and be available to future researchers, but also, you know, and Frankie, I just showed you, I, I shared my screen with you about how we've been organizing a lot of our research and I've been organizing the research uh, is that I'm hoping still that one day, and I still every once in a while I'll catch myself thinking, how am I going to do this? But I want to eventually down the road, once we get to a point where we can't go any further is to release all of my research and have that readily available to anybody that wants to dig into it in the future because again that's the key you can read john wingate's book you can read charles stewart's book um you know all those things are readily available but to actually have research that's already organized and put together available is not something you know you're not going to get john to to release all of his all of his notes from all of his books i mean that's just not the way it works but i want to have that availability so if 50 years down the road uh, another group another uh, you know, little Frankie and little Chris come along <laughs> in the future and want to go down this path, and maybe they have the technology available to do so that they'll have all this research and and save them a couple hundred hours of work. So again, if you have any suggestions on what down the road how I could do that, I'd be very open to that idea. But uh, yeah, I'm still trying to figure out how to do that as we as we move forward. Yeah, and if anybody out there deals with uh, 
paid sponsorships for a podcast. <laughs> uh, me and Chris have been racking our brains with that, yeah. and just I, I know we have the downloads to do it, and and uh, any type of stuff like that. I it's mean, not easy. Um, they it's don't not. Make it it really isn't. <laughs> no, they don't. They really don't. And it's like, oh, you have to have like you know thirty thousand downloads an episode. I'm like, we're not Joe Rogan. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and not only that, but then they're like, please know what these acronyms are: CMO, OCD, BFG, and all. You're like, what the heck are all these things? Right. Uh, what are you going to do research on? Just lady? how to learn how to do this? Anyway, are we ready to? Uh, I need. A, I need. A, Chris, I need a podcast on how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm sure there's one out there. Uh, so you're ready to move yep. forward with our with our outline. It's day. Get, get going. Yes. All right. And speaking of that, Chris, I actually just paid um, our service on Podbean. Oh. <laughs> so, so, our, so our shows stay up for 100 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, I appreciate that. Um all right, so let's dig in. So the first thing I want to talk about is boots on the ground. And um, we talked about that a little bit in the last episode. Um, and we dug into, I can't remember if we really dug in deep, but uh, again, we have a great guy by the name, actually we did kind of dig into Rich Yoakum being involved. Uh, the next step in that, though, is really exciting. And that has to do with the technology. Again, since we've started this podcast, the, the word technology has been used a lot. And we're finally getting to the point where we're going to be able to actually implement that technology we did a little bit with the uh we had a couple drones up in the air a few weeks ago in hannibal uh but we're getting ready for the process and frankie you may be able to explain this a little better than i can but uh getting ready for the process of using lidar um and from my understanding and i asked rich about this i'm like uh, so what are we looking at like a like a little you know foot diameter drone he's like no it's about as big as your truck and i went holy cow <laughs> So this is a big, a big piece of equipment that we're bringing in, and it has to do with uh, being able to see very, very small, uh, small like indentions and small uh, changes in the in the uh, elevation of the ground. And Rich will be able to explain this better. And I have a really strong feeling that we'll have a bonus episode with Rich coming up explaining how this is used uh, in our off season. But um, this is something we're bringing in, and um, we're gonna we're right around the corner of actually implementing that. So, Frank, I don't know if you wanted to add anything to that. Yeah, lidar is a really interesting technology, and it's coming from uh, the company that Rich actually works for. So, um, you know, being that he heads that department, he has a pilot's license. He has to put in, and it's a lot too. It's not just like picking up a DJI you know, Mavic Pro or a Ronin or, you know, a Phantom or an Aspire. Uh, I mean, AKA a are, drone. <laughs> AKA a drone, yes. I like DJI, um, so I'm going to give them a little bit of a credit and make sure. Maybe they'll send us something, Chris, I don't know. <laughs> but um, DJI for me is, is, I think, the best drones out there if you want to do your own type of droning. When you get into what Rich does, you're talking about professionally manned drones. These are essentially airplanes, small planes, small drone planes. Um, and some of them are the size, about, about the half the size of a uh, Silverado. Me and Chris actually drive the same truck. We both drive Silverados 1500. So if you ever see that truck on the road, um, you can split it in half. And that's basically the full circumference of what one of these LiDAR drones look like. So in order to fly that, you have to have a pilot license and... I believe uh, Rich has a Cessna as well. So he's actually a pilot. He actually flies real planes. So um, the way when we were with him, he, 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 
he flies it flawlessly, just very graceful and understands, you know, what he needs to do to capture certain things. So it is definitely going to be fun and interesting. And hopefully we'll get some news stations involved as well, Chris, when that comes out, because that is kind of a big story. This is, you know, two civilians that don't work in police work, but are looking for, you know, these three lost boys. And we have people now coming out of the woodwork to and not even out of the woodwork. I mean, this is this is Tex Yoakum's grandson, which for me still makes this such a cool story. Um, so he's almost picking up where his grandfather left off. So, yeah, very cool. And, and and just to give you a little bit more, again, I think we'll probably be doing a bonus episode in the off season with Rich, and he'll be able to fully explain how this lidar works. But one of the things that he did say to me is that <clears throat> when you put this uh, this drone up in the air and it does this lidar, uh, it's it's really just it's it's taking a um, it's taking like a a, um, oh, what do you want to call it? Like a laser. And it's lasering the ground and it's looking for anomalies and looking for changes in that in that elevation on the ground. It, mm-hmm. it's, so, it's so precise. It can see up to a centimeter difference on the ground. So if there's like a leaf that is a, a little bit up uh, above, like on top of grass, it will be able to see that leaf uh, from the air. Uh, so, and that's really helps us kind of, the reason why we're bringing this in and the reason why it comes back to Julie Angel uh, a few episodes ago in our discussion about the sinkhole. And the sinkhole is so important because it seemed like that was one area that really wasn't investigated very deeply as much as it should have been. And Julie really feels strongly. And we do have some other evidence pro- uh, suggesting that the sinkhole may be a very, very strong key and very very important into the investigation so we're bringing this lidar in to see if we can pinpoint this uh, sinkhole location again it's been 50 years down the road but um both julie and rich feel confident that they we could get up there with this lidar and be able to find that location so that's what that machine's going to be brought in to do is find that sinkhole location now i'm going to go ahead and fill you in because it is a season finale and hopefully by the time we come back next season we'll tell you about all the results and what happened but what's going to end up happening and my goal and i think frankie's goal is well is if we can find the sinkhole location the next next thing in our list is to bring in ground penetrating radar is to see if we can actually see if that is a sinkhole and if it does have some sort of cavern underneath it so then if we get to that process in the g and the ground penetrating radar guys say yeah there's there's definitely some sort of structure underneath it then we go to the last step which we've talked about a little bit this season frankie and that is bringing in um some some dogs to do some smelling yeah, the cadaver dogs are – she's very excited as well to bring her in. Uh, once again, uh, you know, just to flag that too, cadaver dogs are not drones. They're actual little guys <laughs> that run around, and they can send sewer over um, dead bodies. Um, most, most cadaver dogs, uh, we don't really know how far back their noses can go, but it is said up to – over 100 years, um, they can sense things. So these guys are incredible little critters. Unfortunately, cadaver dogs need a police escort because they cannot be doing this without the help of the police. So once again, um, I've said it on my personal Facebook, on my Instagrams, I back the blue 100%. We need them uh, to help us with this investigation. So please, if you are a follower or a member of um, our site's, Please keep your 
commentary about the police, especially Hannibal police, uh, probably somewhere else, right? We want, we, we need their guidance and we need their help as much as we can um, as we move forward for finding these investigations. At the end of the day, these are the guys that are going to, the guys and girls that are going to come in and, and help us uh, solve this mystery if Rich Yoakum picks up something with that LIDAR or the thermal imaging too. I don't know if you went into that, but the, he has another drone that does thermal imaging. And in order for those two drones to work, Chris, we need the foliage to go away. We need fall to come fast, and we need a good winter um, to kill all the foliage because then we'll really get a good read on those yeah. areas. And, so. and that's why we haven't done it. Uh, obviously, we had Rich up, um, uh, I want to say it's probably the uh, beginning of September of this year, and he, he did do some thermal imaging for us. Uh, the cool thing about thermal imaging, and, and I haven't seen it's such a big file. He's, he's having a hard time uploading it. Uh, I think he's going to mail yeah. it to us, actually. But uh, he... Um, it, it can show uh, variations underground. So, And he did point out that it is possible with, with thermal imaging that you can potentially see uh, caves underground because of the cooler air coming up. It's easier for the air to penetrate to the ground level. Uh, so you might be able to see a darker area on the surface with the thermal imaging camera. And when we did put up the thermal imaging camera in that area, there was a couple areas of interest. But again, as Frankie said, we really need to get into fall and have a little bit more of a clear visibility because, uh, you know, these thermal imaging cameras can sense such such significant change are very, very little changes i should say and the problem we were having is that you had trees and leaves that were hitting the ground and obviously if you stand under a tree during the summertime it's a lot cooler uh, underneath that tree than it is standing out in the sun so we're having a problem with even just getting that aspect down so once we get that fault the fall foliage to fall off and we can bring in the thermal imaging and the lidar then we're going to get a very good understanding of of what exactly we're looking at um, in that area. So it's that's very exciting that the potential, again, going to the idea of bringing technology into this, something that's never been done uh, to give us at yeah. least a, one pathway uh, and maybe be able to mark this off as this is not the right way or possibly the other way and that this is, this is where they're at. Yeah, and this is just fun for um, and exciting for the Dow and the Hogue family that remain as well because uh, up until this point, they really haven't had the opportunity um, to have outside people come in and do this. So uh, with great appreciation for Rich and the company he works for, and once we get sign-off and release forms from the company he works for, we would be glad to um, thank them a lot too because they are really contributing to this. this. This stuff is not cheap by any means, and the fact that Rich is willing to do this um, is is huge for this podcast and for the documentary. Um, it doesn't put that stress and weight on us of just thinking and or throwing out an idea of where they might be and then going away. We actually have the opportunity to look at something with the boots on the ground that we'll be instrumenting. And this, guys, is within the next couple of months. This mm-hmm. is not something we're waiting for. Um, we're, we're doing this as fast as we can, and hopefully this year um, we'll really pan out something, and hopefully we can get those officers involved and then get our a little cadaver di- um, cadaver critters is what I call them. Um, they are the cutest dogs in the world, too. They're just so friendly and nice and fun, and, and um, all they want to do is do good. So they're good boys and girls. 98% Chris, 98% Chris. Mm. That's how that's how effective cadaver wow. dogs are. 
They're they are incredible, incredible animals. Um, so with that, Chris, you want to move to the next? Uh, well, actually, next it kind of works into what we're talking about, and then and going specifically into the details about the sinkhole. I came across an article, and it was from the Hannibal Courier Post, and it was from May thirteenth, nineteen sixty-seven. Obviously, every day uh, in the month of May in sixty-seven, there was an article about the, the Lost Boys in the Hannibal Courier Post. But this one kind of stuck out at me, and I'm going to go ahead and read you this uh, paragraph. It says several attempts to locate the tunnel were made last night, but without success, and the risk operations ceased at midnight only to resume at 8 a.m. today. It was first believed that the tunnels under the roadway led for only a few hundred feet back into the bluff. It was later discovered that the passageways would lead more than 1,000 feet back with underground water adding to the hazardous conditions. Now, I sent this uh, this little snippet to Julie, and if you remember our discussion with Julie, that was one of our thoughts, was that it's possible that they went down one of these passageways and they ended up finding that sinkhole. They found dirt that was coming from that sinkhole. That's where the whimpering was coming from, which we heard about in another newspaper article. And um, But, you know, we, never, we don't have a cave map. Uh, I will tell you that Rich is working on... Um, you know, Tex Yoka made the maps, just to lay it out for you. Tex Yoka made maps, and we do have proof that he did make maps of the cutout area. The problem is, is that we can't find those maps. Uh, so we have uh, Rich doing some uh, some back-end stuff, trying to see if he can track down some uh, possible leads of locations that that map might be in. But to go to the storyline here is that now we have written proof that those those passageways were at least a thousand feet long. And if you take a Google Earth image and you uh, like, if you use Google Earth Pro and you say just take the center of Highway seventy nine and run a thousand feet in one direction, it is surprisingly far. Uh, how far a thousand feet is from that seventy nine cutout area, and actually goes way past Stoll School. So it is possible. That we are talking about a sinkhole where the boys may have been at that sinkhole location because they found a passageway to go down. So that leads into our whole theory. Uh, Frankie, you got any thoughts? <sighs> I got a lot of <laughs> thoughts, Chris. It's 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 <laughs> it's it's pretty crazy how um, you know the newspaper articles are still ringing truth. Right? It's like it's like those breadcrumbs. Uh, that we have that are kind of leading us to different pathways. Um, when you when you look at what Google Pro is able to do with that runway, um, it kind of gives you this broad perspective of the area as a whole. Uh, but I don't know. It's it's definitely something that like it's kind of like a kid on Christmas, right? Like you you're excited about the gifts that you're thinking you're going to get. <laughs> But then when you get to Christmas, it's like, all right, well, they yeah. got the wrong <laughs> So it's always that toy um, that's, uh, you know. But but I, I think that a lot of a lot of good is going to come out of what these newspaper articles are, are going yeah. to. Because I don't know that people were reading them yeah, like we're right. reading them. You weren't. They were using them back in six. So. They were using as as information, but they weren't using it as research. And I think that's a big difference. There is that we're able to dissect. And I told. I don't know if I've said this on the podcast, but I have literally over three hundred articles that I have uh, archived now. Uh, it has everything to do from Tobin to to the Lost Boys, but. Um, 
there's just so much that you can now piece together because in just to lay it out, you had a Hannibal Courier Post, you had the Quincy Herald Wig, you had the United Press Incorporated, which is another, uh, which is a nationwide uh, press um, a company. And then you had obviously the Associated Press. You had, you even had St. Louis Post, you had Chicago Tribune, you had the Boston Globe doing their own articles about the Lost Boys. So you have a lot of different places that are doing their own stuff. So you, you can, and those guys are, they're on the ground. Those are, you know, all those reporters are on the ground and they're interviewing different people. And that's key because you can't just take one news article from May 14th of 1967 and say that's what happened that day. You you have five different reporters that are reporting different things and getting different interviews and getting different information. So being able to plug all that stuff together, you know, 52 years after the fact is is, is really helping us a lot. And that brings us, what, to Chris, to the next segment here, huh? Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about uh, Charles Stewart. Uh, if you don't know the name um, by now, uh, we'll tell you about him. <laughs> Charles Stewart was a guy who wrote a book back uh, before John Wingate, and it's a small book. Uh, I, I got a copy finally and was able to read it. I Actually, Frankie has that copy now, and so mm-hmm. hopefully he'll get a chance to read that soon. But there was an interesting thing in the... Uh, you know, there wasn't a lot that you can gather throughout the book, but there was one little paragraph that was actually in the appendix of his uh, book that I'm going to go ahead and read to you because I think it's very important. And so this kind of puts you into a whole loop, and it's going to be interesting talking about this in the next episode, but I'm going to go ahead and read this to you. It says, uh, he indicated the bulldozer driver had worked late that night trying to uncover the boys and that he, the dozer operator, thought that he had accidentally covered the boys. He gave me some additional names for me to contact to help fill out the details of the story. That was the only paragraph in there. But that paragraph says that there was, on the night of May 10th, there was a construction worker working for Tobin that was afraid that he accidentally bulldozed over the boys and covered them up. This is chilling. Um, When you originally pointed it out to me, I'm like, I wonder if this is a whole episode. And, of course, it can't be a whole episode because, once again, it's built on um, this fear, this speculation that someone might have buried him over. And then we remember, you know, what Tex Yoakum was able to do. Um, and then Going wasn't there the a guy by this? Yeah. Right. Lucky's Hole or something like that? Uh, yeah. was, it, was it Lucky? No, it wasn't Lucky. Um, Stony or something? You're put, uh, Stony's Hole. Yeah, there you Stoney's go. Stony's Hole, yeah. yeah. So, you know, so don't – but once again – it's one of those things, Chris, where you can't rule it out, right? Yeah. It's it's possible. And that's why, you know, the pre-conversation here about bringing these guys in on boots in the ground and looking at LIDAR and looking at different things that can kind of grade and degrade that road and see what it is. Can we ever dig up 79? <laughs> you better have some hard evidence before you do something. That's millions right. of dollars of work. So that's not just like drilling a hole and getting a sample. <laughs> right. Yeah. So... Uh, I will tell you, actually, just popped in my head. Uh, it not really, kind of related to this, uh, but not really. Uh, Julie Angel told me something really cool a couple weeks ago and told me that and if you grew up in Hannibal, uh, maybe in the last 20, 30 years, um, I did not know this because by the time I started realizing it and looking at it, it was gone. But it used to be that when you're going up 79 and like going uh, south towards Lover's Leap, coming out of Hannibal, you obviously have the terrace levels there on the left-hand side. At 
one point in time, there was actually concrete that was placed to cover up some entryways in the Lover's Leap side of the hill. Now, that is gone. I have looked extensively at that hill over the past couple of weeks after she told me that to see if I could find anything that represents that at all. But it's not. But she said that back in the day that you used to be able to see a couple entrances that they actually concrete sealed off. So I thought that was kind of cool. Not really related to the, what we were just talking about, but I wanted to throw that out there as an extra little tidbit because I find that's pretty neat that they they still did the the effort of covering it up and also real quick now that i'm thinking about it and i just brought this up to you frankie when we were there uh, just a couple weeks ago is that i don't think you have that additional lower terrace level if it wasn't for the efforts of what Texiocum did in the final days of searching, because we did come across a newspaper article that said that they were opening up a 200 foot long and 17 foot deep hole. So they were actually taking a ripper and just ripping in 17 foot deep and 200 feet long. So if you take a look at that last, the lower terrace level at, uh, at the cutout now in today's world, it almost looks like that about the same height. So it really made me wonder, like, I wonder if that wouldn't even have existed today if it wasn't for the efforts of, of Texiocum and those guys in those final few days of the efforts to uh, try to find the boys if, if that road would actually look different today if it wasn't for that right because it, it was not necessary they had already had the 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 basically they had already had the path forward mm-hmm. this was just an, an, an extra amount and we saw that with the cost and the Tobin you know episodes that they were doing this yeah that's a really cool you know, it's funny. That's where Lily was coming down with the camera, and the and the butterfly landed on. Oh yes, on the lens. Remember, it was so strange, and it just hung out with her for a while. In fact, it hung out with her the whole walk back. She had she a hard of a time, heck of a time getting it off. <laughs> yeah, she was afraid of like she was going to hurt it, and she brought it to some flowers. It was really cool though, because butterflies are the symbol of reju- rejuvenation and re- and reincarnation. So this is really cool thing that maybe maybe something's there. Maybe there's a message. I don't know, but the definitely something that's really interesting when you look back and say wow you know some of that when you drive on that road some of it is because of the search yeah very cool very cool very neat and actually speaking about uh tobin in particular kind of moving on to our next subject uh we did get a message i'll give her a shout out to jan hill norick she is in our discussion group and she sent i believe she might have posted this if not she sent it to us in a message but we were talking about there was a lot of speculation and there's quite a few people in our discussion group that's been asking okay how late were the construction guys actually working it's five o'clock why would they still be working you know they work a nine to five job or you know they work a six to three job or whatever Anyway, so she actually, uh, well, I'll just go ahead and read this to you. She says, I discussed this with my 83-year-old dad, who had, who was a MoDOT maintenance crew worker. What he could remember about J.A. Tobin's work hours was basically they worked daylight till dusk on the road cut. I also asked him if he could remember if MoDOT had highway employees there at the time. He told me most construction companies only use their workers due to the liability factor. It sounds like after listening to the podcast, J.A. Tobin, uh, that they didn't need additional they didn't need additional liability. But what you can pull it, pull out of that is that they worked from dusk till dawn or from dawn till dusk. So you're looking around uh, six ish in May. I, I don't have an exact sunset time uh, for them, but uh, maybe six thirty uh, since it's in the May uh, May time frame. So they're working according to what her father is saying. They were actually working during that time of that 5.15 stretch of when the boys went missing. 
Yeah. I mean, man, it just, I don't know. This, this regurgitation of the, of the facts too, Chris, is just the work schedule. And now you're having people, this is what I'm talking about. Like you have people from, from the Facebook pages that are coming out and being like, well, actually this was our schedule. And then it kind of puts into light, like, well, wow, all the people that were, you know, were these guys still working on the road crew at 11 o'clock at night? Were they, were they working weekends? Were they doing overtime? Was It really kind of narrows it down. It narrows the field of search. Um, whether it helps us or opens up another rabbit hole, <laughs> that has yet to be determined. <laughs> right. But um, one of the things that, like, I think that that's interesting to kind of, like, keep this episode going uh, because we don't want another comment like get to the point but <laughs> there's never going to be a point until we find the kids that's the point of the that's the point of the right. podcast <laughs> but um the road construction accident statistics i think yes. is something that you flagged something that you flagged again i think one of our angela i think was you yeah. guys went back and forth for a bit and that was a really cool conversation that i didn't want to interject in I was like, oh boy. <laughs> yeah so so angela is our our moderator and we've mentioned her a few times on that and and i was i was super excited about our tobin uh, episodes and, and we had so much good information and so much information about the 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 company tobin and she pointed out it, it was kind of i don't know what the right word would be to use but she did, wasn't as excited about the episode as i was was. And I, I, so I quizzed her about it. I was like, so what, what really hit you on that? And one of the things she pointed out, she's like, well, you brought up the deaths of, of Tobin workers and the injuries of Tobin workers, but there's nothing really to compare that to. And I was like, I thought about that for a while. I was like, boy, that is an excellent point. I really didn't have a chance to dig into the statistics of, of workplace accidents, especially in highway construction. So I did some digging, Frankie. Um, one thing I will point out, OSHA didn't become a thing until 1971. However, uh, we'll point out that in the 1960s, liability, as Jan just mentioned in her post, liability did become an issue. And so companies, uh, there was actually state uh, federal legislation that was signed that uh, it used to be that if, if, say, your family member died in working on a road somewhere, that the company could get away with saying, well, he knew what the risk was that he was working hmm. here. And so they got away with it and they never got, you know, never were, you know, charged with you know, having to pay money or anything like that. That changed in the 60s. There was legislation that prevented that from happening. So they were account held accountable uh, for their actions if, if one of their employees died. So that shift, even though OSHA wasn't around yet, that shift of, of workplace safety was, was beginning to happen in the 60s. Uh, but I want to throw out just a few numbers real quick to you. Uh, the number of fatal work-related injuries at road construction sites in record is about 123 per year. And this is specifically road construction. So about 123 people die on average every year uh, in road construction deaths. Okay. And that is not, I want to point this out because you hear a lot in uh, the news about that a worker was struck by a, a car or something like that. That is always, you always hear about those news stories. This 123 does not include those types of accidents. It is because it's not, it's not part of the work. Right. This is specifically right. something happened to the employee while they were working. Like they got uh, ran over or they tripped and fell in, in something they, you know, the situations like what we saw with Tobin. So you're at 123 on average. In 1966, I was able to find, and don't ask me how because it took me forever to find this, but <laughs> there is, I found out the total number of employees in road construction in 1966 
and the number was 724,000. So there's 724,000 employees in road construction in 1966. You take those numbers and it comes out to about out of one out of every 5,886 employees are killed in a workplace construction incident. One out of so one out of 6,000 just to make it easy. Oh, so the odds are actually worse than COVID. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> um, moving on. Uh, so, so yeah, one out of 6,000. So, Frankie, I'm going to throw this out at you. When you okay. hear that number, what, how, what, what's in your thought? One out of 6,000. High, low? You know, it just... I look at it like every time I go to work, right... I don't know that I face something that like that. Um, I know that as a truck driver that you do, you put your you put your your life on the road almost every week, right? And you have that <clears throat> you never know. Somebody falls asleep behind the wheel. Somebody sways into you. For me, it seems like if if you if, if I'm coming onto a job and somebody told me you know one in six thousand people out here die due to the road construction. I feel I still do the job. Um, I feel it's fairly safe environment. Um, is there a, is there a comparative number? I was like, just say? pulling that up. Um, here we go. So this is over a lifetime, though. Um, so, like, just for example, uh, chances of dying in a motorcycle accident is one in eight hundred ninety. Um, Chances of heart disease is one in six. <laughs> um, yep. motor, motorcycle or uh, motor vehicle crash is one in 106. A gun assault is one in 300. Uh, yeah, so a dog attack, so, yeah. one less in 118,000. Right? Yeah. Like less people uh, drive motorcycles. So. Yeah. Uh, chances of being killed, well, that's kind of a bad one. Uh, you know, let's just use lightning. One in 180,000 chance of being hit by lightning so um you know one in six thousand um the closest thing is dying of sunstroke now on this list i'm looking at so which is probably one of the reasons how you die on road construction yeah <laughs> good point <laughs> that's a scary good point there um yeah uh i'm trying to see here's have you had a one. summer in missouri yet <laughs> so here, here's another one an accidental firearm discharge the chances of you dying from that is one in seven thousand yeah so you're saying an accidental firearm discharge and a chances of being killed in a construction site at the same odds so it's, uh, yeah it's low if you take those ratios, that's actually kind of low. So, yeah. so let's put that back to our Tobin facts. And our Tobin facts is that we had certainly within a five-year stretch, we had three people die of accidents that happened on Tobin sites. And then you had about another five or so, maybe six accidents that weren't deaths uh, that happened in those, those areas too. Uh, so, But anyway, you take three deaths and that seems your chances of that are I mean, of having three deaths in one company would be, I can't do the math, but that seems, that seems a little high, especially. Well, did they, did they have more than 18,000 employees? No, no. I mean, I mean, honestly, if you really think about it, they probably had at max at max, like 500 employees. So that's, that's a high statistic. Yeah. (laughs) There was definitely stuff going on there that, that could have been very dangerous at the time. If you're losing three people. Yeah. I mean that's that's what one in one in two one in uh, one in like one seven five. 
Wow. One and a half. No, it would be like one in. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not good. <laughs> I mean, honestly, no, it's not. It's low. It's like wow. I'm. This is. Yeah, chances are but not that, good. That's interesting. I mean, yeah. you know, things happen, but at the same time, like when you look at. Yeah. Well, yeah. good old Tobin. Yeah. So. Um, not the safest and, site to work. Yeah, so you can look up some of those statistics. The The number I got for the total road construction employees in 1966 came from, uh, you just do a search for occupational uh, occupational employees in 1966, and it comes up with that. So that's kind of nice that we came across that. And I'm so. sure you struck a nerve with some mathematician in our audience. Oh, my gosh. Well, technically, here, you're going to get an equation that's going to come. Through, and it's gonna, for some reason, it's going to hit Frankie's. It's, yeah. it's going to be like, what's this weird one? This is Chris's fault. Why are you yelling at me? Let's jump the ship. <laughs> if there is a mathematician that's really good at ra- at those types of ratios, please let me know because I would love for somebody to dig down deep into those statistics for me. Um, if I give you the raw numbers, give me the ratios and stuff like that. So I love, please, please come forward and let me know. I would love come, for somebody to do that. Come forth, child. <laughs> I, I I barely got through pre-algebra in college. So, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I know where you're. I would definitely appreciate that. So anyway, but that's where we're at. I thought that maybe that would give us a little bit better of an idea of of what the kind of statistics we were looking at. Uh, hopefully, maybe that that fed into the the hunger a little bit that our moderator was wanting. <laughs> maybe probably a lot of people are wanting. So yeah, sure. What about yeah. the newspaper articles? Let's, oh, okay. let's kind of wrap this up. Yeah, yeah. So let's get through this uh, pretty quick. But I want to point out how they came to this point. Um, again, I yep. started doing uh, organization of all of it, uh, all of our newspapers that I've collected, and I went ahead and I grabbed everything I possibly can. Uh, so again, I've mentioned this before. I'll say it again. If you see a newspapers.com article and you're like, Chris needs to see this, chances are really good that I already have it. Um, because again, I have probably over, I definitely have over 300 articles that I have saved in the archives now. Uh, but there was a few things that when I went through, because I, when I archived these, I went ahead and tagged them. So the great thing is, is down the road. And I did this with Frankie just a few minutes ago before we started is like, if he brings something up to me, um, about dogs, I can do a tag of dogs and it pulls me up all the articles about dogs. So, um, so we can do that. But uh, I'm, when I had to do that, I had to read all the articles and put the tags in manually. But doing that also It's helped. impressive. It's <laughs> impressive. It's <laughs> very impressive. Well, that's yeah. Uh well, thanks, but the good thing about that is is that it came across a lot of interesting stuff that we have not talked about. And so that's this next section here of about four or five things that I want to bring up um that we're going to talk about. And the first thing is going to be is the janitor. Uh Frankie, this has been a hot topic subject on our discussion group in the past couple weeks. Uh, I don't know. Did you want to expand on that, or do you kind of know what I'm talking about with that? I just feel like you've done the legwork. I don't want to. <laughs> okay, so yeah, I was like, I'm not going to blow your thunder there. So. Okay, well, <laughs> uh, there's been a lot of discussion about the the logistics of Thomas Breedlove, the janitor at Stoll School, being able to actually see the boys on the uh, second terrace level at that 515 time. Because, well, the newest post was the one that said there's a house that blocked it. Yeah, two-story house. Yep. Yeah. 
So I, I did come across this, and the reason why I think this is important is because, uh, and this doesn't have so much to do with that. That was one of the subjects that were brought up, um, which we're still investigating. And by the way, if anybody has a picture, and I'm going to put this on our to-do list, our, our, our help wanted list, is if anybody has a picture of the South Side in 1966 uh, or before the construction occurred, uh, please pass that along because we would like to see if we can actually find that two-story building that's been discussed uh, in our discussion group to see if we can line that up to see if that makes sense. Uh, but anyway, going back to the article, this is from the United Press back on May 15th of 1967. I'm going to read this to you. It says, Thomas Breedlove, a janitor, works the night shift at Stoll Elementary School just across the street from the Hogue House. It says, quote, I've got certain things to do on a time schedule, so I know it was about 4.40 when I raised the window to the second story classroom. He said he saw three boys cutting across the lawn across the street heading south. He identified two of the boys as the Hogue brothers. At about 5.10, Bree Love said he opened the window again and saw three boys standing on Lover's Leap Hill to the south and thought they were the Hogue boys and their friend. So there's a couple things I want to point out to you here, Frankie. The first one is the 4.40 time frame. Him saying that he saw them at first at 4.40. And that is a little bit of a problem because in the Karis reports, uh, around that 440 time frame, they were on they were working their way around the uh, Murphy's Cave Hill. So they were taking that long route that we continuously yeah. talk about. They weren't spotted on the Stoll area uh, around the Stoll School till around. Uh, let me see here. Uh, looks like around 445, Dexheimer saw them. So. Um, it does kind of work because Dexheimer lived on uh, Riverside Street, which is the street that's right next to Stoll School. It's so about it's, six minutes. I mean, six-minute yeah, so, walk to where the boys were. So actually, it might work. Uh, so that time frame might actually yeah. work. Uh, now, there was a report that said that uh, Carl, Carl Herner spotted the young man loading his truck as well as three boys on Ely Street. Uh, the smallest of the three were carrying a small shovel. The young man was loading up his pickup and saw the three boys. That was at 4.40 p.m. Um, so, But that was on Eli Street. And so that makes it a little bit different. And um, so anyway, just wanted to point that out, that the timing was a little bit different. But it kind of does also match up with the Dexheimer report. Now, the other big point is, is we our intro, Frankie, says 5.15 p.m. <laughs> and this article actually states... That Breedlove said at about 5.10 p.m. Uh, so this is coming from an actual newspaper article. We go off the 5.15 based off the Karis report. So, I mean, 5.10, 5.15, whatever. Uh, but yeah. I found this is pretty interesting that we actually have a true quote uh, from the from the janitor. And also, it says that at that 4.40 time period, they were a lot closer to the school. And my argument to Frankie was, is that... That first time that the boys went past the school, it would have been a lot easier for the janitor to see what they were wearing to where down the road at 515 when he sees them on the ter second terrace level, you might not be able to see their faces, but you're going to see their clothes. And remember, that was the three boys that were wearing those clothes. That was the Hogue boys and the Dow boy. Right. And remember, too, Greg, um, Craig Dow had a unique style about him. He was a little... Uh, fashionista. He used to wear the wing toed, the wingtip shoes, sweaters. He was a classy dresser. So if he was wearing anything like that, that would basically be, um, I would say, attention getting, like or memorable. 
like one of those sweaters that he might have been wearing or his wingtip shoes, that can, can be noticeable from way out, especially if it was a colorful one. So that can be noticeable um, from that distance. But yeah, I mean, I, I look at those posts sometimes, Chris, and I'm just like, you know, we actually put a drone up there. Um, we put a drone from the second floor window looking at what the vision would be from him to there. And we haven't seen that footage yet, but I'm curious to see... But but once again, Chris, I, 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 I default back to what um, you're saying. I mean, if you were wearing something that was noticeable, if you were holding the shovel, if you had a bright sweater on, oh, yeah, it's the same three kids, right? Yeah. You're you have exactly to also understand, too, this is, this is the south side where you have <laughs> hundreds of children probably at this time out and about exploring and having fun after school. So, And, and you got a janitor that works at the school every day and literally walks out the front door and sees the Hogue house right across the street. What's the chances that he's not going to know who the Hogue boys are? Exactly, which probably will make more news because of that as well. Like they, <laughs> <laughs> He knew... And you're talking about a school that didn't house. Like, I, I went to school in Miami, right? There was 1,500 people in the graduating class. This, this is not Miami. So I'm, I doubt they had that many students no. in this school, right? So that's actually probably a good thing to, to – and I hope want it. If somebody can find out what was the number of that class and, and, and how many kids were in that class, that's actually, that's actually pretty good. Because, you know, if there's 100 students in the entire school – you're going to know every one of those. As a teacher, I had to, and, and Jeremy is a teacher, my friend Jason's a hit. They, they, they run into about 250 kids a day. They know mm -hmm. them all by name. They know what they look like. You know what I'm saying? So you adapt to that yeah. um, as well. So he would be able to spot them, I think, from, you know, if he was a janitor there since they were in kindergarten to then, he definitely knew them. Yeah. So. Like I said, once again, don't get into the breed love rabbit hole where the janitor had something to do with it. It's so clue. But at the same time, we can't rule anything out, Chris, because we don't know. <laughs> you don't know. Uh, yeah. We don't know. We don't yeah. Know. And I guess I've told you this in our private conversations, Frankie, is I have a really hard time of believing that anybody, but I may be completely wrong on this, but I have a hard time believing that anybody that wants to help with the investigation is somebody that's the ones that committed a yeah. crime against it, whatever yes. the investigation is in in most cases when that happens that is part of the plan yeah. is to get involved hmm. to play the cat and mouse that's not something you use you know oh you always return you always return to the scene of the crime yes and no really depends on on that person yeah so anyway let's move on uh so that that was with the janitor uh the next thing it has to do with another discussion group subject that's been coming up in the last um, couple months and that has to do with the sock i've gotten a lot of a lot of information <laughs> about the sock that was found and there's there is quite a few news articles that talk about how the sock matched uh one of the socks i believe from one of the hope boys uh I, I i believe don't quote me on that. no it was great it was craig's was it craig okay i, I could because his, his older brother came in and said he had a very similar pair that's right so um so there's there's a lot of subject now i did find this news article this is from uh, may 14th of 67 in the quincy herald wig 
I'll read this for you real quick. Rescue workers tirelessly labored into the fourth night of their search for three missing boys here last night, but the results was still the same. No trace of the boys. Rescue efforts were hardened yesterday, early yesterday afternoon when a sock and shoes were found in an abandoned quarry about a mile from Murphy's Cave, where the boys were last seen and which has been the center of the search. When the socks... A sock and shoes were discounted as likely clues to the boys' whereabouts. The reason why they were discounted is because the sock was found with a pair of shoes. Those shoes did not match up with any of the boys. So the sock matched up with what Craig's socks looked like, but the shoes were actually too small to be any of the boys' shoes. So they were together. So that's why it got discounted. And I'm on that. I, I'm on that same boat. I, I wouldn't put a lot of time or effort into the sock theory because why would they be with a pair of shoes that nobody could wear? It's for me. It's it's just, and you're really reaching. Like, yeah. really reaching. Like, it's way too thin, to put it in the immortal words of Lethal Weapon. It's very thin. Um, it's something that, you know, you kind of go by. I, I, when I was doing the uh, Lemp documentary, I remember a judge told me something. Um, if it doesn't, if it wouldn't hold up in a court of law, rule it out. Because it's just going to waste your time. Even if it had something to do with it, it's admissible. Unless somebody saw that thing happen, right? We get back to eyewitness testimonies, the only non-admissible evidence. Mm -hmm. Unless somebody saw somebody take a sock off someone, it, it, rule it out. It's yeah. a waste. It's a waste. And, and plus, where this sock is found yeah. is just... Right. A mile away. It, right. And it was a similar sock. Uh, I mean, I go on runs all the time these days. I find the weirdest... Or I come by the weirdest stuff, like shoes... Um, somebody threw like a, a Halloween guy, like he's hanging from a bridge in St. Charles right now. It's really oh, funny. He's got like a pumpkin head and he's just like, and the cops were trying to get to it and they couldn't get to it because it's so oh, high. But you yeah. find those things when you're running and, and like, unless it's hard evidence, it's, it's, it's a waste. But tell yeah. me about, yeah, there's socks the, there's common. The, sock is common. Yeah. But the pastor picking up Gre Craig, I think is a very cool thing. Yes. Yeah, so this is a completely off the wall compared to what we saw, but it came from a St. Louis Post article on uh, May 14th of 67, so the Sunday of that. And this was from a guy by the name of Carl Swayze. He, uh, or Cleon Swayze, I'm sorry. He was actually St. Louis Post-Dispatch uh, correspondent that was in Hannibal during this whole process. So you can find St. Louis Post-Dispatch articles uh, with him on there. But I want to read this because this is... Let me just go ahead and read it. Uh, it says, The Reverend L.B. Martin, pastor of the Lindell Avenue Christian Church, where Craig was a com uh, uh, communicant, communicant? <laughs> uh, discounted the suggestion by some townspeople that the boys either had run away or were in hiding. It says, quote, Craig is a very mature and responsible boy for a 14-year-old. He said... He was due home at 6 p.m. Wednesday to attend a church youth function. I was to pick him up and take him there. As far as I can remember, he had never missed any other church function he planned to attend, and I regularly picked him up to take him along. It is inconceivable to me that Craig would deliberately miss this one. Yeah, it's, it's huge. It's huge, especially where... If you look at, if you read more on Craig, and there's not a lot, there's not a lot on the Dowels. And, and that is something that in the off season here, guys, as we wrap 
these um, next two episodes for the season two, we would love to hear from some Dows. We would love to know a little bit more about that family because it seemed like Craig was very involved with the church and the ongoings of the church. Um, and he's raised right. Everybody that speaks on Craig's behalf always says he's a polite young man. Um, he's very respectful. He's very clean. He's not your typical 14-year-old adolescent at this point. Wasn't really into caving. He was more into, like, biking um, and do, doing stuff on bikes and stuff. I remember that coming up when I was doing research on, on Craig. So this caving thing would have been new to him, uh, and it could just be the way that Billy and, and, and Joey were going on and on about what they had found. Um, once again, leads me back to that side of the probability of the caves and what happened and what they explored. Um, and then with that, uh, that's what I would, what I would say to that. But, um, you had mentioned that when we do our search for newspapers and, and you put in the word dog, that was actually not just being facetious. This is actually something that did occur. And we do flag dogs in those articles. And one such dog <laughs> was the Hulk family yeah, dog. Uh, real quick, before we get to that, I do want to point out, though, the, the one thing you do want to take away from that story that we just talked about is that that is different from what we believed, is that the we believed Craig, Joey, and, and Billy were going to get on the bus to go to the church youth group meeting. But according to this news article and according to a quote by the reverend, that Craig was actually going to be driven by the Reverend to this church youth group meeting. Uh, so, so that's Pastor. pretty big. Pastor. Pastor I'm sorry. Uh, actually, it says Reverend. So um, okay, Doing yeah, good. We're yeah. Fine. So <laughs> I'm Catholic. Yeah. So pastors, are <laughs> but just keep that in mind. That, that's that's different from what we've been reporting. That that we were we thought that they were going to get on the school bus to go to this church youth group. But yeah, let's talk about the dot. Well, keep in mind too, Chris, though that they were out in the caves till like ten, eleven o'clock at night on on Monday too, right? The well, boys, we'll, we'll, the we're going to be talking about that in a second too. Okay, uh, okay. Yeah, so. let's get to the family dog first, <laughs> real quick. I found this interesting. The Boston Globe. I mentioned this. The Boston Globe had a reporter there in Hannibal. Crazy, but they had one. Uh, so a May twelfth, nineteen sixty seven, Boston Globe article, which is a really cool article. I'd read it if you get a chance. But it says the searchers who vainly tried to use dogs, including one flown in from St. Louis Police Department, and the Hogue's family pet, were accompanied by about twelve members of the Hogue family and their friends. So the Hogue family actually used their own dog in the search efforts, which I thought was pretty yep. interesting. So let's go to the next point that you were talking about real quick, and that has to do with Tuesday night. We didn't yep. have, if you go all the way back to episode two of season one, we talked about the nights, the nights, uh, the days leading up to May 10th. We didn't have a lot of information about Tuesday. We knew that they were, they did explore the caves on Tuesday. However, we found this uh, little snippet in another uh, UPI article from May 15th, in 1967. And it says that Tuesday evening offered a welcome break in a wintry weather, in the wintry weather, which has lingered long into the spring about 9 30 or 10 o'clock that night the hogue brothers quote came home all muddy their mother said quote we told them not to go there up there again but the next day they would go back to the caves obviously they got a quote from uh, helen hogue there but the interesting thing is is that it shows the boys were there till 9 30 or 10 o'clock exploring the caves the night before yeah that's big which still, which still, so so the whole reason, and what you were saying, Chris, and this episode is going to go long, but 
you know, we've been doing good. Our numbers are great. Um, but so maybe they just like our voices. <laughs> um, the the so so why it's important that Craig was being picked up by the pastor is that the pastor never mentions the brothers. Okay. Secondly, I keep going back to this. This is now the second season. I've probably mentioned it maybe four or five times. I find it odd and I find it peculiar that if you had boys out till 9.30 at night exploring the caves, the only viable reason why they would send Tim out to look for the boys was because they were grounded, not because they were going to church. Hmm. Well, Because they were... Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna rebut that a little bit. There in Karis's report, uh, I believe it was David Bentley that stopped by the house at around five o'clock, um, somewhere around that time frame. I don't have the exact time. And Helen answers the door, and Helen says to David, "If you see the boys, tell them they're gonna be. They better hurry up, otherwise they're gonna be late for the church youth group meeting." So he is quoted. She's actually well. It's hearsay through Karis's yeah. report, and that's the only place we see that. But it's said that David said that Car- that uh, Helen actually says, hey, make sure the boys get home in time so that they can make it to the church youth group meeting. So now... <laughs> it's, it's interesting because I, I know where a bunch of my true crime audience is going to go right now because we've just mentioned a pastor that admits to picking the boy... Craig up and taking him to the church. If it's the church we're thinking it is, it's in Montgomery City, correct? According to what we found from the the Hannibal Courier Post, it's that was the only youth group meeting that was actually had a calendar. It was on the calendar of events, and it was actually not Montgomery City. It was uh, Monroe City. Monroe mm-hmm. City. I always get those two confused because I I work with Alabama, um, and Ohio. So sorry. Um, when you look at that possible tie-in. I don't know, man. It's crazy. It's really crazy. It makes you wonder. It's like, well, they did they all have a ride? Why didn't he make that specific? Were they all going to the same church? Was it two different churches? Um, so something occurs there, and that's why if you're on the side that they're still in Hannibal, then they weren't missing long before they were missing forever. So they weren't missing long until they were missing long. Because this is that's the that's that crazy thing that keeps happening, right? It's like it's without one of the one of the shows that, that I watch is like it's just vanished, right? Without any evidence of where mm-hmm. they went, right? It's spooky. It is so spooky because we're seeing them, we're seeing them, we're seeing them. We never see them again. And that's, that's kind of, and you can probably say that about every missing person's case. The problem that why this holds water is because there's three boys. There's three of them. How do you, how do you lose three people? One, I can see. Mm-hmm. Two, John Wayne Gacy was notorious. He did it twice. But three is crazy. And, and, and just to, to keep that in, in that mix too, Chris, like some of our, most downloaded episodes was Charles Ray Hatcher and was the John Wayne Gacy episodes because you have people from other podcasts that just want to learn about those serial killers and how they intertwine in different stories. And I'm not saying by any means that this is somebody local suspect wise, but I am saying that somebody's on record saying that they're, he's giving the boys rides. You, we have DD on record saying that the boys did take rides. So you almost have to keep that 
open for speculation, which really leads us into the final segment here before we close and say goodbye. Terry Hill. <laughs> Terry Hill. All right, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we've come to that part of this podcast where we blow your mind and then say, we'll see you next week. All right. That's right. It's called a cliffhanger. Yes. Uh, so That's a cave, it's a cave it's a hanger. hanger. <laughs> All right, so let's start. Uh, we're we're, uh, we're towards the end of September of 2020 here. We received a message a few weeks ago, specifically on September 6th. I'm not going to give his name because I didn't ask if it was okay, but uh, maybe in the future we'll, we'll give him some kudos uh, if he feels comfortable with it. But I got a message. We got a message. This is, by the way, this is my favorite instant message probably in the last two years since I've been doing true crime. This is my favorite message. Uh, so it says here on September 6th, the guy uh, message just says, have you ever come across the name Thomas Terry Hill in any articles of suspects or possibly another rabbit hole? Question mark. So there we go. So Frankie, you saw the <laughs> message first and I think your response was just like, um, or maybe ask for more information. I can't remember. Yeah, I was just like, what is this basically like? What is this in regards right. to? And that's when it went down a very dark path. And, <laughs> and I, I and where Jackie Jackie Myrick gets involved because once Jackie gets involved, it's, it's game up. <laughs> so so the the Myrick man is. is so a, let me explain. So I didn't put, uh, respond. Uh, Frankie responded, uh, said something um, you know that we weren't really familiar with and whatever. Anyway, September seventh, the next day comes along. This is the day that I was working really hard on trying to remember. I told you I was reading every single article, making the tag so we could find it easier down the road. This is where I come across a May 15th of 1967 Hannibal Courier Post article, and it says, A Missouri State employee skilled in tracking was brought into search today. Terry Hill of the Missouri Department of Corrections was called in from Moberly to join parties searching wooded areas. I went, holy crap, we just saw Terry Hill in the day before we get a message about yeah. him. So I quickly send a message to the guy again, and I say, hey, uh, any chance that the, that the Terry Hill you're talking about worked at the Department of Corrections? And he's like, let me check with my mom, because he, he it's a family member, a, f a friend of the family, or whatever. Uh, and so he got back to me, he's like, she doesn't, doesn't remember if it was Department of Conservation or Department of Corrections, but he did work for the state. And I went, okay. So I'm continuing on. We get to the Hannibal Courier Post on the uh, May 17th of 1967. This article says, uh, which is crazy, Frankie, because this is a two-parter here with this article. And I want I've never read this article uh, before on the podcast, so there's two points where I have to talk about this, and you'll know what I'm talking about in a minute here. It says, It was believed that someone was trying to disrupt the search when Terry Hill, a tracker from the Institute of Corrections at Moberly, found tracks near the cave south of Lover's Leap Cutout. The tracks, Kara said, have not appeared where, have, excuse me, have appeared where various, quote, hot clues have been reported. Karras and his assistant, Conway Christensen, investigated the scene where the tracks were found and during the search had rocks hurled at them by some unknown person. Karras said that he could not see he could that he could see only the legs of the person running through the brush. They pursued the person for a short distance, but he managed to elude them in the darkness. After this an incident was released, several persons mentioned kidnapping as a reason for the boy's disappearance. 
<laughs> and so everybody's like, well, why, why is Terry? Well, why would Terry Hill be a suspect, Chris, if he's helping lead this tracking thing? Yeah, um, yeah. So, so real quick, we mentioned this before, but we, and I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, we've connected the dots together. The guy running through the woods, I still believe is our our good old boy uh ray farrier ray farrier so and i've never rode that never never said that article before so uh that's probably a lot of time first time for a lot of guys uh, hearing that so anyway let's get back to terry hill so uh we also learned during the conversation with this person in messages once i told him holy cow i just found this guy's name in articles and he responds back that in quote he says he went to prison for child molestation out of Texas. But my family thinks they thinks there was possibly something going on here in Missouri too. He ends up um, going to prison in Texas for, I believe, I mean, Jackie and, a, and Don, somebody else is looking this up too, um, trying to find those police records. Normally what happens is if you die in prison, your records are just gone mm-hmm. they're just done there's just there's just so much traffic that they don't hold on to anything however um this for me is something that is going to open up season three a lot because although we have not ruled out sinkholes caves and road cuts we have also not ruled out the local suspects one in particular being somebody that worked at the department of corrections worked around criminals, and then tracked in the very investigation, which he would later be arrested, charged, and put in prison for. So on the next episode of The Lost Boys of Hannibal, we'll talk a little bit more about Terry Hill, his convictions, and the rest of the research that our team put together to really make Terry Hill a possible suspect in The Lost Boys of Hannibal. From all of us here, I'm Frankie Cambaletta. I'm Chris Ketters. We'll be seeing you. God only knows what I'd be without you.